Hi, I'm Janine. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and standing by to join me is Eleanor Cleghorn. She's going to talk about her new book, Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World, and how all this relates to her backstory with your own misdiagnosis. Is that correct? It is correct. Um, I was diagnosed, eventually diagnosed, with a chronic autoimmune disease called systemic lupus erythematosus, which is the most common form of the disease lupus. In 2010, I just had my second baby and that was a really complicated pregnancy. It turned out that my unborn baby had a heart condition. His heart was beating slowly. And of course, you know, the first sort of port of call to try and work out what was happening was to figure out if anything was going on in my body yes. that might sort of be impacting the pregnancy. Okay. So my doctors did blood work and they found out that I had an immune abnormality whereby I was making an antibody that was attacking my baby's heart. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was re- it's a really rare condition called congenital heart block. And there's very few causes or very few kind of known causes for this okay. um, heart defect. And so one is that, you know, you, the mother's immune system, which shouldn't interfere and cross the placenta and interfere with the baby, yes. actually mounts um, an attack effectively on the growing baby. So, of course, all systems went towards looking after my baby and making sure that I was medicated in a way that would hopefully stop this immune abnormality happening. And thankfully with lots of monitoring medication, uh, he was born healthy with a perfectly functioning heart. Oh my gosh. I'm a mom. So I'm on the edge of my seat here. Yeah. It was a really, really devastating time because we had to sign forms and things to so that we acknowledge that the steroids that I was taking might possibly have implications for, for our baby. Yes. So it was a real, you know, we had to make this really sort of informed decision Oof. and weigh up the risks of, you know, leaving it and not doing anything or medicating and potentially causing him further harm. Yes. But thankfully, med- miracles of modern medicine, mm-hmm. he, his heart was saved and He's really healthy. He's 11 now. Amazing. Very healthy. But while all this was happening, you know, the doctors had identified that I had something happening in my immune system. But what they didn't do was explain anything to me about how this might impact my own health. So that's awful. I mean, you would think they would. They just didn't. I think that it was, I mean, I would say that it was rightly that my baby took priority in that situation yes and we had to move fast we had to make quick decisions but yeah none of the doctors ever sort of sat me down and said look this might mean that you have you know some sort of underlying condition you might have you know autoimmune activity no one really explained that to me sure yeah so about nine weeks after he was born I started to get really unwell and it, at first it was just these kind of pains in my back, my shoulders that sort of felt like the usual aches and pains that one might expect with a newborn and a toddler to look after. Yes. But after a sort of week or so of this, I realized that something was really wrong and eventually went to my GP okay. who 
made me go straight to the emergency room. And I was then admitted to hospital with, as they realized, a heart condition. My, I had really, really high heart rate. I was struggling to breathe. I had an immense amount of pain in my back. And my Oh, Eleanor. Whoa. Yeah, it was, it was really difficult. And then again, it was a mystery. You know, the doctors at first did not know why I was so unwell. Yes. And it took a rheumatologist who's a specialist in these kind of autoimmune diseases to come visit the ward. And he looked at my notes and he was the first person to sort of puzzle together what had happened with my pregnancy and what was then happening to me. And he ordered specific blood work that would um, examine my immune system yes. and also things like the amount of inflammation I had in my body and my rheumatoid factor. And he said, look, I think from the results I have here that you've got an autoimmune disease and I'm pretty certain it's lupus. So we're going to refer you and you'll be cared for and we can try and manage this. May I interject one thing? Yeah, of course. So my, my sister-in-law has lupus and I also know someone else with lupus. And when I think of lupus, from what I know, and maybe some people know, we think of a painful joints, swelling of the joints. I mean, your heart, that to me never would have been a red flag that that was lupus. Yeah, exactly. And I think this, for this reason, as you say, that it wasn't necessarily a common or you know familiar characteristic of lupus yes. meant that the doctors were sort of exploring all the possible reasons that I might have had heart disease might have developed heart disease in that time so they looked at things like maybe I contracted an infection or postpartum or maybe I had a sort of form of pneumonia that was causing fluid to sort of leak into my pericardium mm -hmm. they were really baffled so but it took a specialist with knowledge of how sort of diverse and unusual presentations of lupus can be to go yeah. okay yeah it can affect you know because lupus likes like a lot of autoimmune diseases it can affect almost any part of the body but yeah as you say symptoms like joint pain also yeah, yeah. sort of sensitivity to sun um quite often people with lupus have skin rashes um and then more rarely it can really impact the organs especially the lungs the heart the kidneys and cause some life-threatening flares which mm -hmm. was what was happening to me wow yeah. <laughs> you know and it's um <clears throat> it's a lifelong thing i mean did you know did you have any symptoms when you were younger or in your 20s that, you know, you possibly could have had it then or nothing at all? I did. Wow. I had about seven years. So from my sort of early 20s, when I was a student, I started to get a lot of joint pain, which, mm -hmm. of course, is characteristic of lupus. Yes. And yes. I would have days where my ankles were so swollen that I couldn't really walk. Oh, no. And I would you know, also have other odd symptoms like sort of persistent migraines. I had some um, associated mental health issues, I think from the amount of pain that I was in and the sort of confusion around that. Um, but I also had a real sensitivity to heat and light, sunlight. And of course, these symptoms, as happens with lots of autoimmune disease, they wax and wane. Yeah. So you go into remission and you go into flare. So it wasn't as if they were always persistent. But whenever I would go to the doctor to try and find answers for this pain and explanations, 
I was invariably dismissed and told that I was hormonal, that I was having growing pains. Oh, come on. I know. By a man, correct? <laughs> of course, always by male doctors. Yeah. I saw, I think I saw one female doctor in my, who was like my college GP, who just didn't want to know. She was just really time poor and harassed. And she did not want to know about my kind of peculiar pains. And she sort of said, oh, just rest, you know, take some ibuprofen or whatever and go and just have a rest. Sure. Yeah. It was always dismissed. And, you know, I because I think this pain made me anxious, I think that also contributed to some doctors just saying I was, you know, stressed because of work and college. One doctor, in fact, uh, suggested that I might be pregnant and not realize. Oh, come um, on. I know. I know. Sure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> of course. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't know how to figure that one out for myself. Um, but none of the doctors ever referred me for any diagnostic tests. None of them ever asked me kind of detailed questions about, you know, my health history or anything that would happened in my family medical history. Mm -hmm. You know, none of them took any detailed blood work. I think I had a, you know, normal blood count taken kind of once. Um, and so I was just left in this sort of wilderness with my health in those years of my 20s, where I just kind of internalized this sort of medical opinion yeah. that I was paying too much attention to my body, that I was fussy, um, that I was maybe even, you know, making it up in my head that oh, it was all psychosomatic one. Yeah, right. Oh, that's yes. a terrible way to live. It is a terrible way to live and reflecting back on it now, I think, you know, this was the like early, early aughts, early 2000s. And we didn't have the culture then that we do now around women speaking out about these more intimate and kind of traumatizing experiences, especially around healthcare. Yes. And, you know, it was kind of pre, you know, we had no sort of spaces online where we could kind of read other women's experiences or realize that we weren't alone in this stuff yes. so I think it was I kept really silent about it and yeah it was it was isolating um and something that I think I really parceled away sure. and of course that doesn't have um that's really detrimental to your health and of mental course. health especially as well I one thing I would take away from this um is that you have to be a detective when it comes to your health. And if you have a gut feeling that something's wrong, it probably is. Mm -hmm. And you know your body best. Um, one thing I want to ask is now knowing you have lupus, do you follow an anti-inflammatory diet or just you stick to a diet that works? Yeah, I mean, I stick to a diet that works and I've tried lots of things in the last 10 years. I've tried no gluten, I've tried no meat. I've tried no sugar. I think uh, from what I've seen, you know, there are certainly foods and other kind of lifestyle things that can trigger flares. Yes. But uh, now I think I've just sort of got into a pattern where I know that certain things, I mean, aubergine is one of the things that um, eggplants, you know, one of the things that triggers my oh, joint. Oh, a nightshade. A nightshade. Yeah, nightshades. Yeah. So no so nightshades. Okay. Some, but others are just really bad. They just really trigger the inflammation around my joints. Well, one thing um, I remember, well, I don't know why this is, but they, they don't, they suggest not having wheat. Well, that's a gluten, barley, rye, 
oats is surprising and rice, which are gluten-free and quinoa is gluten-free. That's surprising. Yes. Yeah. It's always surprising, isn't it? About oats, but oats are a great thing. They're a great thing to have and like gentle too. So what works for you, you have to experiment and see what triggers and what doesn't. Absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest triggers for me, I mean, my disease is now managed really well. And over the last 10 years, I've had a couple of more serious flares. So I've had a form of pneumonia that's caused by lupus inflammation. So it's called lupus pneumonitis. So it's essentially just pneumonia, but it's caused by that systemic inflammation. Um, And that was difficult, but I, at least I knew when that was happening that my autoimmune was the most likely explanation. And even with this knowledge and even with autoimmunity being all over my medical notes, I was still admitted to the emergency room and still put through a battery of unnecessary tests, including an MRI. Um, when I was insisting, you know, I'm autoimmune and yes. you need to see what my inflammation markers are doing. Exactly. Yeah. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I've been told also not to, not to have unnecessary x-rays or MRIs. Sure. Because autoimmune, you know, because that too can be triggering for flares. So even with this knowledge, you know, being really crystal clear, I still sometimes find myself in a place where I'm having to battle for Mm -hmm. my knowledge and understanding of my body and my health to really be heard. Yes. It's interesting. I want to point out, um, you touch on also the combination of misogyny and racism in your book. Um, you seem, you know, really aware of this as an important issue. Do you want to elaborate on that a little? Yes, of course. I think I really came to understand this issue more when I was researching lupus in the sort of early years after my diagnosis and came across lots of research that was showing that the disease disproportionately, 90% of sufferers of this form of lupus across the world are women, right? Mm -hmm. The disease disproportionately affects Black, Asian, Latinx, ethnically diverse women when they tend to have more severe outcomes of the disease. And it was really difficult to sort of figure out not only why this disease affects women more than men, but also to find any kind of thorough and careful research about this, you know, racial bias of the disease too. So I became aware of this disparity and also the other variables involved in this disparity. And I think through, you know, through stories like the experience of Serena Williams, we become more aware publicly of how there's a perception, there's a bias around the perception of women's pain, but depending on who you are, that bias, you know, is magnified. And it was really important for me in the book to tell the full story and to also make it really clear that, you know, women, I'm talking about unwell women, I'm talking about the history of unwell women, but unwell women are not a monolith. And throughout history, you know, the racist misbeliefs about, for example, predominantly about black women's pain um, really became entrenched into medical ideas that we're still having to deal with the legacy of now. Right. There was a study conducted in 2016 into, and it was one of these blind bias studies about um, implicit racist bias. So this is not conscious bias. This is implicit bias okay. um, in medical students and trainee doctors. And it showed that 
racial biases against the validity of black women's pain and against things like, you know, perceptions like they have, you know, fewer nerve endings, for example, was still present in the biases that black women were shown compared with white women. And in the 19th century, there was these sort of racist anthropological ideas about pain, sensitivity, and there was a sort of almost a pain sliding scale. And at the very top were refined white upper middle class and upper class women who were perceived to be the most sensitive and vulnerable to pain because they had, you know, refined sensibilities and very delicate nerves. And compared with white women, black women were cast as almost being completely invulnerable to pain, which of course was was a racist misbelief perpetuated in anthropology, partly to justify some of the abuses of chattel slavery. But it was something that then became sort of medical law. And it was actually a justification for some really harrowing abuses of the bodies of of black women in the 19th century to perfect certain gynecological procedures. And then you see the sort of residue of these beliefs have really persisted with us and, you know, have been used or kind of in narratives around, you know, reproductive, around the removal of say, the reproductive justice of women of colour, for example, Uh or the way in which, you know, Black and Latinx women especially have been, you know, for all intent and purposes, experimented on in the name of the construction of certain medications, including the pill. Horrible. Yeah, it is. It's truly horrible. I think, you know, I just really wanted to make sure that these stories were illuminated Mm -hmm. and really... You know, there is no story of unwell women without the story of all unwell women is how yeah. I really felt about this. What, at what point did you decide to write this book? I began the research that became this book probably in the first sort of years after my diagnosis, when, as you said earlier, I became detective about mm-hmm. my disease because it was shrouded in so much mystery. I started looking to medicine's history for answers I was already a history researcher, have a background in cultural studies, and I was doing a PhD um, in historical and cultural studies. So I was already in that kind of research mode where I was, you know, delving into the past and I was consulting archives. So I really turned my attention almost as a kind of side hustle to looking into medical history. And I started kind of finding these women in historical case studies, not just women with lupus, but women with other complex and often contested and often medically neglected diseases like endometriosis or other autoimmune diseases and gynecological conditions. And so many of these stories of unwell women resonated so sort of intimately with what I'd been through. So I would read about, you know, a woman in 1902 being, you know, in pain for most of her sort of young life and being continually misdiagnosed as hysterical or nervous or Mm. emotionally unstable before, you know, finally finding a doctor who happened to be studying these symptoms and made a conclusive diagnosis. You know, some also lost their lives and then were kind of studied in reports later. Mm -hmm. And it really struck me that there was this story to be told about, you know, how we got to this place we are at today where we're facing up to this historic neglect of women's health needs. 
Yes. And I wanted to tell this story in a narrative way because it, it, and it would enable me to kind of prioritize these stories of unwell women and in a sense, let them be a really important part of that story and narrative too. Yeah. So the research was sort of bubbling away for a few years. And then I think it was in about 2017, I started writing more about my experience of being chronically ill and engaging with it more in, you know, creative writing and a little bit of critical writing. And I thought, okay, I'd really like to tell this story. And I kind of considered possibly writing just about the history of autoimmunity, but then I wanted to expand it out. And I thought, no, I want to tell this whole story from the beginnings of modern medicine so that we can kind of build up this picture about how, you know, how these misbeliefs, how these mystifications and mysteries have been entrenched and how we're dealing with that now or what we have to deal with today in the present. So yeah, I got the book deal in 2019 and then did an awful lot of writing of the book during the during lockdowns here in the UK. Sure. Well, I think it's a very important book for people to know, not just here in the United States, but everywhere, because women, you know, are discriminated against and they doubt their um, intuition about their own health. And it's scary when you, you know, when you don't know what's wrong. Um, and it could be, a, could be something like just switching up your diet and maybe you're emotionally going through a very hard time and things are triggering you. Absolutely. I mean, this, this, emphasis you've placed on sort of knowing your own body is so important to me because you know we do we are the best narrators of what's happening in our bodies but there are certain you know dynamics in play especially in medical encounters where we are you know we get put in a position where we distrust ourselves because we feel that we're not being seen as credible we're not being trusted yes. that our accounts are being dismissed and disbelieved and so I think that leads leads many women and many people to doubt their intuition and their knowledge right. about what's happening. And, you know, I, I always, you know, my part, one of my messages that I really wanted to impart in this book is that, you know, we are the most reliable narrators of what's happening to us when it comes to our health. Yes. And that what we're battling against is something systemic and ingrained that hopefully can be faced up to. And, you know, those mistakes of the past moved away from. So we can kind of create for everyone a, a more equitable, more respectful health culture. Yes, absolutely. One last question. Do you think a lot of our inflammatory um, ailments are environmental and, you know, also what we ingest? You know, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because the rise in inflammatory diseases like autoimmune conditions over, you know, the last decades has yes. been exponential, hasn't it? It's been it really fast. And, you know, non-communicable diseases, you know, certain cancers, autoimmune diseases, you know, they, they're becoming really big killers of people yes. around the world. And women are disproportionately affected globally by these non-communicable diseases. So it's really interesting. And, you know, there's still so many mysteries around, especially autoimmunity. Medicine still doesn't know exactly what causes it. Mm -hmm. they, they know that it's a combination of factors, environmental, some genetic, yes. and some 
you know, just to do with this sort of predisposition. Um, but yeah, it seems as if there is definitely something about the way we live, about the way we eat, about <laughs> the way we occupy the planet that must be having an impact in this way. And I think so. Yeah, the, reason, must- the reason I bring it up is as I look at dementia and Alzheimer's and, and high saturated fat diets and heart disease. And I mean, all these things are not unrelated, you know, yeah. and on a smaller scale, I always had eczema, which is autoimmune, mm-hmm. not as uh, yeah. large of an issue as lupus, but um, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, clawing my skin, scratching, scratching, you know, and over the years, I learned that it was something I was using. It was actually a baby wash, right. Johnson. Yeah. Uh, there was a, a form of formaldehyde in there, which I'm allergic to, but also yeah. my diet. I, I was ingesting dairy, a lot of dairy um, and other things. So the eliminating and, yes. and going to the doctor and say, can I have an allergy test or can you do some testing? And, and then eliminating those things in my environment helped. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I've had a lot of success personally with plant-based diets. Yes. You know, I really have, you know, I felt so much better when I have sort of stayed away, at least from meat and kind of limited the amount of dairy and kind of just really up the veg and like the good proteins. Yes. I know that that, you know, I can feel that that has it's got like a lighter and more tender impact on my body. And obviously it has a lighter and more tender impact on the planet as well. Well, and look at the correlation between the gut and the brain. Yeah. Which is so fascinating. Right. And we're only just beginning to unravel like the full kind of depth of those connections and the impact of that connection on our health more broadly. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the gut is the, you know, it's the brain, isn't it? It is. It really is. Yeah. Um, we have to wrap up, but I want to find, want to ask you if you could tell listeners where they can find out more about you and your book. Of course. Um, so I am at Eleanor Cleghorn on Twitter. So do come and um, come connect. I'd love to hear from you. And my book, Unwell Women, is published by Dutton Books and is available in all good bookstores and online. Fantastic. Eleanor, it has been a pleasure chatting with you. It's been so lovely. Thank you so much for having me. 